Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You've probably heard a million times that confidence starts from within. If you don't believe in yourself, how can you expect anyone else to follow suit? And according to Dr. Michael Gervais, the first step to overcoming performance anxiety is to focus on what you control, yourself. Michael's one of the world's top high-performance psychologists and leading experts on the relationship between the mind and human performance. He is the founder and host of the Finding Mastery podcast and the co-creator of the Performance Science Institute at USC. He has been featured in numerous media outlets and has worked with world-class athletes, artists, and CEOs to help them unlock their full potential. And today, Michael's giving us a masterclass on reducing anxiety, boosting self-confidence, and overcoming FOPO, the fear of other people's opinions. So the book covers a lot, and, and the big theme is this idea of the fear of other people's opinions, or FOPO for short. And you go as far as saying it's a curse. So can we start there and deconstruct FOPO for us? What exactly is it and why is it so detrimental? Thank you for starting here. It's something that I've spent the last handful of years doing deep research around. And it's also something that I lived with for a long time. And for a long time, I thought I was one of the onlys that struggled with this relentless checking in to see if I was okay. And so let me start where the research has led us and also just contextually shape that what ended up happening over 25 years of working as a high performance psychologist with so many world's best across disciplines is that they had it too. And so I started to feel at home with folks and you know, like if we go way back though, our ancestors gave us this gift and the gift is the brain that we have. It's millions of years old and the, it, it's figured out how to pass on, our ancestors figured out how to pass on, you know, best learnings to the current generation. But one of those learnings is that most of our brains are optimized for survival and this ancient brain designed for survival is like highly skilled at scanning the world for even the smallest of threats. So our family heritage is yours, mine, and, and our communities figure out how to navigate saber-toothed tigers and wildebeest and even the dark ages and so on and so on. But in doing so, they, they built this code into our brain to identify danger quickly and without having to think about it, there's this whole host of neurological and electrical and chemical responses to ready ourselves to fight, flight, freeze, and sometimes even submit. And all of that is designed for survival. Thank God we have it. It's really important. It's one of the, that on and readiness is one of the things I spend a lot of time with elite performers trying to figure out like how to find that calm intensity so they can perform and live at their very best, even on world stages. 
But part of that survival code is to make sure that we didn't get ostracized from the pack. So not just the saber tooths, not just you know readiness for war, but making sure that we were favorable in the eyes of others. Because quite literally, you know, getting kicked out of the tribe, being rejected by somebody was a bit of a death sentence. Meaning that once we're kicked out of the tribe, it was too difficult to hunt and gather and forge and build a fire, build shelter, protect our children, and potentially even having to fight, you know, other other tribes. So so being part of the center of the tribe, being accepted is incredibly important. And so we've got this ancient brain optimized, you know, for deep survival, but it hasn't quite figured out how to navigate modern challenges. And so the modern challenges, you know, are very different. And with the advent of social media and all people at some level becoming a public figure, and by the way, I think most of us have been public figures our whole lives. Sometimes the public realm was the local neighborhood, or sometimes it was, you know, just our family, but we're involved in relationships with other people. So again, just to be simple, our ancient brain is highly designed to the slightest hint of rejection from others. And the, you know, one of the great challenges that many of us have is this feeling of being overwhelmed, this feeling of, of um, not quite having the right energy that we'd like to have on a day-to-day -day basis, the, the zest for life is wanting for many of us. And we've got this thing that's operating under the surface and that's what we're calling FOPO. And where that kicks in, the fear of other people's opinion kicks in, you know, it just might be one of the great constrictors for human potential. And again, it's an effort to avoid rejection, to be accepted. And that's the kind of core of the whole problem here is this checking in with others to see if we're okay, to avoid negative evaluation, to avoid being kicked out of the tribe, to find favor and acceptance from the other person, as opposed to knowing how to navigate your own sense of self in relationship to other people's in a healthy way, but not being beholden to their potential ostracization. You know, that that's a bit too much. And just to kind of round us out here is that belonging is safety. And that's why we're so skilled at reading body language and micro expressions and words and, you know, actions and inactions. And we're highly tuned to it. And it's not last note here, it's not the actual fear of what they might think of us that's so problematic. It's the constant readiness to try to interpret, you know, and respond to what they might be interpreting. It's It shows up in our closet when we're picking out clothes to go to an event. It shows up and, you know, as we're walking into a boardroom or an intimate conversation that we want to have, or God forbid, the the dreaded five steps onto a stage where the number one fear for humans is public speaking. So that that's the hint at FOPO is because they don't have guns or weapons to shoot us if we make a mistake on stage, but what they have is an opinion. And that opinion is so threatening that most of us avoid and obsess about, uh, we avoid those types of situations and or we obsess about making sure that we're, we're tuning well into other people's favorability and it's quite exhausting. And so that's why we think it's one of the great constrictors of human potential.
is this modern brain doing its job, but not optimized for modern conditions. How much of the population do you think suffers from this? We were not able to do that grounded research to know. And so I can give you my experience is that it's been with me for much of my life. And many, uh, I'll, I'll, let's go safely, better than 50% of the some of the greatest performers that I work with, it's part of their ecosystem. And so I think it's safe to say once you take a look at the concept of FOPO, whether it's debilitating or not is a separate question, but I think we all have it. There's obviously some good to it. If it's a motivator, if you work with some of the world's greatest athletes, CEOs, people who are at the highest level, and half of them have that, I would argue that there's some good here. And obviously it can become crippling for some people and never allow them to reach their full potential. How does one assess their relationship with FOPO? And is it a source for good in terms of performance or it's a source for restricting my growth? This fear of what somebody else might think of us, this scanning and checking to avoid being rejected and to make sure we're included is a strong driver for performance because we are outsourcing our level of performance, our artistic expression, our ability to like be about something to other people. And so at some level that will help us get good. It might even, that anxiety, that anxiousness, that deep desire to be accepted by other people might even get you to the world stage. But this is not something that is going to enable you to be free, to have a sense of buoyancy and joy and happiness and freedom in that artistic expression of being your very best. It's not going to get you there, but it might get you good. So for those people you've worked with who are at the top of their game, what is the motivator that actually ends up to be quote unquote healthy for their mental health, for their personal life, for their longevity? Because it sounds like this one could be a motivator and could be successful, but probably not so good for one's mental health in the long term. So if you think about high performance and well-being and the psychology of well-being and the psychology of high performance, they're actually the same psychological skills. So knowing how to be grounded in psychological, very powerful set of psychological skills allows you to navigate the unfolding, unpredictable unknown, which is basically navigating the next moment. It is unfolding, unpredictable, and unknown. Without deep, rich psychological skills, we get whipped around by the world around us. We don't know how to stay grounded and to be on time with the unfolding present moment. And so it's not so much about motivation, it's about, but I can answer that question generally. It's more about having the, a robust set of skills that allows you to be fully present, to be able to meet the demands of a moment, any moment, any of the external conditions that you can even imagine is they are required to have psychological skills to be able to navigate them. When it comes to motivation, uh, motivation tends to last minutes. So I'm more interested in what are the primary drivers that people are working from. And there's two basic camps, there's internal and external. And so internal drivers are this feeling of this love affair with unlocking something, with stitching something together, with being in a creative experience where you go, oh, that's how this works. Oh, that's how that works. 
So that that sense of having an internal driver to organize your efforts in life towards that unlock because it's so magical. That is durable. That can hold together when there's high stress, high pressure, when there's external factors, whether they be successes or obstacles or setbacks that can pull us off of our game. So internal drivers tend to be more robust. The external drivers, there's nothing wrong with them, which is like a big house, big watch, big car, you know, big social network. Like there's nothing wrong with them, but they are a bit more fickle. And what that is, what those are is like wanting to have something outside of you that is something you can point to that's a bit of an emblem for evidence of your ability to have a psychology that is strong. And so that's just a bit more fickle. It's the internal drivers that are more stable. And what I've experienced from best in the world across multiple disciplines is that they tend to have high, they tend to be high in both, both internal and external. And I'm a little bit more interested in having the internal just outreach the external, but, um, but that's to each person to sort out themselves. So in other words, if you don't love the journey and you're entirely focused on the outcome, that's a recipe for unhappiness. But if you love the journey and you love the outcome, that seems to maybe be the sweet spot. Most people have that a bit backwards. And even high performers is like, I'm grinding now for success later. And then when that moment for later success arrives, they've built this pattern of grinding for success later, even when that moment arrives. And so we are consistently preparing ourselves to be here or to ready ourselves for later. And it's that kind of balance between the two that is a difficult arc to strike. And 100%, I agree with you that committing your resources to love the process of what? Of getting better, of being connected, of unlocking. There's a, that's what really sits underneath the process is part of the recipe, if you will, there's no clear recipe for happiness and joy and flourishing in life. Harvard did a 75-year study and they found, they studied the good life. As you well recognize that there's two key variables from their findings from over 75 years of, you know, quite average people is um, relationships and purpose. So relationships is really starts with your relationship with yourself and then the relationship that you have with other people. And it's not about having other people love you. It's about you being able to pour yourself in to loving others. So having a high quality relationship is one of the key pillars to the good life, as well as being clear about your purpose in life. And we can all have purpose in life. And I think most of us do, but it's not actually crystal clear what it is until you can put it into a sentence or two. And that's big work now. <laughs> that is not easy to do. And, but those are two of the key practices um, or key pillars to be in love with the unfolding process of life, if you will. So it feels like many high performers base their self-worth on their results. What's the work that one needs to do to make sure that doesn't happen? So if you think about a, your identity for just a moment, and we're kind of getting to the deep core of things, many high performers were pretty good at a young age. And there's a very sensitive period between the ages, and I'm just using some good old developmental psychology, between the ages of 12 and 18 to 22. 
that period is quite sensitive for identity formation. That's when we're trying to figure out, am I punk rock, rock and roll, country? Like, where do I fit? Like, what, what, what is it that I identify with? And I'm using music as a metaphor for like your style of life. And what ends up happening for people at that age, if they're somewhat talented at a young age, is that the community talks to them about their talent. It talks to them about their, their proficiency in life. And so the teacher doesn't, can't quite help it, but says, hey, hey Jane, like, nice job on, on last week's competition. Are you excited about you know, the cross town arrival that you know, is coming up on the game? So there's this, comp- this, is this comparative and identity that starts to build, and it's called the performance-based identity. And if you were not talented at a young age and didn't have community recognition for your talent, it's still quite normal to identify with your performance because we get grades, it's a comparison to other people for the most part. Um, We're talking about selection of colleges, comparison of other people, but also I should say this in an unsophisticated way, it's a comparison to other people. My point is, is that at early ages, if left to the devices of our community, we tend to become uh, develop a performance-based identity. It's okay. It'll get you good. It, your identity is grounded on how well you perform relative to other people, but it's a bit problematic. That's one of the reasons why when we go do something performative, whether that is, again, like giving a keynote or saying, hi, my name is in front of a group of five people, we feel that flood of anxiousness and that fight, flight, freeze mechanism where our heart starts to pound and we get a cotton mouth because we've identified with how well we perform. And that performance is relative to not, you know, some objective standard, but the performance is how well do others think of me. And when that takes place, it just gets really confusing. I'm listening as a parent, Uh, our listeners know this, but we have two little girls, uh, almost seven and four. They love sports. Something my wife and I are working on very consciously is not rewarding or not, excuse me, not praising the outcome, praising the effort, which is like kids love outcomes. They score a couple goals on soccer. They, you know, we're all, we're obviously proud parents, but they, they won't stop talking about it. We, we consistently said, well, you worked really hard and you had fun. That's what matters. And so what's your assessment of rewarding just in general, kids of, of any age, obviously performance is a part of it, but this idea of praising effort versus the outcome. The research is quite clear there. And so as a general principle, what you want to do is pour in and invest and have conversations with your children about things that they can control and things that they can 100% control to be more precise. So the car ride home is why most kids leave sport. We've got these you know, adults that understand the importance for performing well and to working to your capability. And we understand the importance of performance in life. And, it, but it's often met with a bit of anxiousness and an unrealistic nature about from the adult perspective to the child's mind. And so the car ride home is quite overwhelming for most kids. So I would just say like if the first principle is having conversations and pouring in and asking questions about things that are ultimately under their control, 100% under their control, 
you create a, a an environment, a car ride home, to foster the psychology of agency, of feeling powerful to be able to um, influence oneself in in said environments. So that it's a really important best practice. And so I love hearing you talk about it. What's an example? Give us a real world example. We're in the car ride home. We just we just played uh we just played soccer. Maybe it was a maybe we won, maybe we lost. What what should that conversation be like for any parent? Okay, so the the first thing is it's not your it's not about your experience as an observer. It's about their experience as a participant. And so um so that means that you've got to be a bit neutral in the process and because it is about them. So there's usually it's it's not like parents are waiting in the car for the kid to come in. Maybe that's the case. Like when I go to practice, when I pick my son up for practice, I don't go in, or sometimes I go in the last 10 minutes to watch. And that's that's just to have a moment to kind of feel what's happening as as he gets in the car. But let's let's say that you're in the car and you're waiting, um, which is again usually not the case. Kid gets in, you've got to be a great observer. And you're observant of body language and to try to suss out the emotion that they're coming from. So the first thing I do is I'm using that kind of calibration as a moment. And I'll just say, oh, you seem excited. Or, um, ooh, what's going on? You know, uh, you seem sad. And I'll put an emotion. I use four basic emotions, right, to oversimplify this process. And I'm calibrating and then I'm sharing one of those emotions. And then the other person will course correct. If I'm, if I'm wrong on one of the four basics, sad, happy, glad, or uh, scared, is that they'll course correct. And they'll say, no, I'm not, I'm not pissed off. I'm actually hurt. Or I'm embarrassed. Or I, um, I'm really excited. They will help course correct. So calibrate, find one, and now you're at least grounding on the emotional level. Then once that happens, the conversation might unfold from there. But let's say that they say they've got tears that are welling up and, and you say, oh, you look, you look sad. And they go, I am. And you say, oh, do you want to talk about it? <laughs> I mean, no, nah, I'm good. Okay. Well, it seems like you're, you got a lot of emotions going on. I'm here for you, kid. You know, I'm here for you, son. And um, if you want to give yourself a minute, no problems, you know, and, and then just kind of give that space. And then what I tend to do is I come back around at some point and I say, Hey, you know, if you don't want to talk about that, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious about how school was today. Or, um, you know, you just kind of bring up something else. And if they don't want to talk about anything, no problem. You send the message, I'm here for you. Um, we don't need to talk about it, but just know that I love seeing you try to figure this out. Okay, now here's the, here's the 100% controllables. One of my favorite things is being part of your life and watching you try to figure this out. I love watching you try to, go for it and take risks and feel all of the feelings that you're feeling. I feel them too. And I just got to tell you, I love, I love being a parent. I love being in this with you. I'm here for you. That kind of message on a 20 minute car ride home or whatever it might be. And you know, it, it, it just goes so far. And so, so again, first order business, be a clear mechanism. Second order business is try to calibrate the emotions. That'll usually take you somewhere. And then what we don't want to talk about is questions that are loaded about performance relative to other people. And they're tired. They're exhausted. They just gave it as much as they possibly could, unless they're loafing, which is a different thing about effort. And um, you know, ask questions about, 
things that are in, in their control and make sure that they know how much you love being in it with them from your perspective. You're not on the field with them, but being in it as a somebody who's who's never had the chance to play soccer or loved when they played sport or music or whatever it was. So those are some guiding principles. Um, sometimes kids get in the car and they just they just can't wait to tell you about the way it's gone. And if that's the case, <laughs> dude, bite your tongue when you want to say, "Well, how did Joey do? Or how did Jane do? Or how many goals did you score? Or you know." any of that kind of stuff. Those are all uncontrollables. Well, I think there are some great guiding principles for life in there beyond parenting. And I, and I think about, you know, athletes at the highest level, I think of coaches and the power they have over athletes. Well, maybe not some more in professional leagues. I think maybe that the, without going down that rabbit hole, that the power dynamics have shifted a little bit, at least in the NBA right now. But this idea of coaches and their ability to motivate their, their ability to instill confidence and also take it away. And, I, and I've seen that, we've all seen that. And this transcends into the workplace and the boardroom across organizations around the country. How do you think about the fine line between building confidence, holding people accountable, and at the same time, really trying to get the best out of someone? and understanding their motivations. I get that's a little bit of a dance and there's a lot to that question, but how do you think about that generally? Let's start with confidence. Confidence comes from one place and one place only, which is what you say to yourself. That's it. When confidence is predicated or required to have some sort of external condition, whether it's what a coach says or doesn't say, whether it's you take you make a score or you don't, that that becomes a very dangerous calculus to be confident in life. So directionality is that it comes from within and knowing how to speak to yourself to back yourself, knowing how to speak to yourself to build a sense of confidence is the first order of business to be able to go into high stress, high pressured environments. Most people don't have that sorted out right. And they think it's a coach's job to build confidence. Coaches can't build confidence. Coaches can help point to things that have gone well they can help point to ways to maybe suggest how they think about something. But ultimately, confidence comes from the person and it comes from specifically what you say to yourself. So coaches, leaders, parents, it's a very important first principle to understand is that confidence comes from what somebody says to themselves. Your job is to help to point to those and to give guidance on what they can potentially say to themselves because they've earned it but it doesn't come from, boy, you got it. That is fleeting. It is temporary. It's external to the person. And the most powerful people on the planet, they know how to work from the inside out. They don't let their external conditions influence their internal state. They don't let the external environment dictate their internal experience, period. And so there, there's a yin and yang, there's a harmony, there's a, a go back and forth, but they're able to work from the inside out because they've invested in awareness of their thoughts. And when you're invested in how your thoughts work, you can begin to guide them and course correct when some automatic negative thinking might take place. You can say hello and goodbye to them. You can, you can literally master your inner game. You can master the way you speak to yourself to create an emotional state that is facilitative of you being your very best. 
So I just, I want to hit that on confidence that it's, it's actually quite crisp how that works. And I, I was never taught this. I, I don't, most people are not taught it in grade school. They're not taught it in the car ride home. They're not taught it, you know, in advanced education. And it's actually quite simple as a first principle in psychology, the confidence comes from what you say to yourself. So how, how do we all become a little bit more confident? What, what's, what's the work required? Is it, you know, standing in front of the mirror and doing affirmations? Is it, is it being more self-aware and having a mindfulness practice? Is it, you know, doing the reps? Is it like, give it, give us some examples. What are some things that everyone who's listening who's maybe working, busy family jobs, kids, and so, you know what, I want to be a little bit more confident. I want to be a little bit uh, less influenced by external factors that can get me riled up? It's a really good question. And when you think about high-performance psychology, there's three main skills. There's, there's secondary skills, but the main skills are awareness, self-talk, and breathing. And so without awareness, even if you are one of the best in the world, without great awareness, you're not in the game. Even if your outcomes are incredible, you're not yet in the game of mastery. You're not really in the game of becoming your very best without awareness. So ground zero is awareness training. Awareness training comes in three forms, mindfulness, journaling, or conversations with people of wisdom. And so those are the three main ways to increase your awareness of your internal experience and your external world that is unfolding. You want to have great awareness of what's happening inside of you and what's happening outside of you. Again, those three practices are mindfulness, conversations with people, wisdom, or journaling and or journaling. Okay. So that's where it needs to start. And then if you're more aware of how you're speaking to yourself, you can do something about it. Most people struggle with some awareness. And so they're not working from an upstream perspective. They recognize that they've got some sort of uh, toxic, critical, self-deflating, self-defeating, non-facilitative type of self-talk. And that, that, but they don't recognize it until they're in the rapids, until it's really hot and heavy, until they're in a high heat moment where they feel their body, you know, wanting to leave or fight or be over, overly aggressive or overly um, passive. And so it's not until those moments, it's too late. You want to work upstream. And that's why awareness practices are so foundational. The second is, it's not, I don't think, I don't use, and I don't know anyone that uses affirmations by themselves alone, where you stand in front of a mirror, just like the SNL skit, and you say, gosh, darn it, I'm good enough. It's, it's not that. But it is having a sophistication of knowing the types of phrases and words and, and dialogue to have with yourself that helps you feel a certain way. And that feeling is hopefully designed to help you be authentically expressive in whatever the environment that you're in. So thoughts influence feelings and emotions. Thoughts and feelings and emotions influence behavior. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, behaviors influence performance. So going upstream in this context is being aware of your thoughts that influence the way you feel, how the emotions are working to drive behavior and performance. So. I know for me that one of the most dynamic things that I can say to myself is that I can do hard things. And I've earned the right to say that because I'm very clear. I've written it down. I've had conversations with other people. Like I'm very clear that I've done hard things in my life. I've faced the dragons, if you will, and there's hopefully many more to face. And I've wrestled with them in a way that I can stand 
in my own truth to say, I can do hard things. I think most people have earned the right to say it, but they're not quite sure if it's true or not. So doing some of this internal work, psychology is like the study of yourself. So studying yourself, knowing what statements help build you and back you to go into high stress environments. Though, I mean, we're just like leaving it all up to chance if we don't have a sense of how we want to speak to ourselves in those moments. And so one of the bullseye for in sports psychology is what we call a ICM, ideal competitive mindset. So what is the vibe? What is that internal state that you're looking for when you go into a competitive, rugged, hostile, sometimes consequential environment? And again, that can be it can be an intimate conversation telling somebody that um, really difficult information. You know, there's a high pressure, high stress moment there. It's like, what is your ideal competitive mindset? What is your ideal performative mindset? What is your ideal mindset that you're trying to cultivate? And once you know the bullseye, then there's a whole set of practices to help you be more consistent with it. So I'll be very clear. If an ideal competitive mindset is like fire with a smoothness, or there's a calm intensity that you're looking for, you, know how, you need to know how to breathe. You need to know how to speak to yourself. And you need to be aware of how you're being in whatever moment. And so that's why those three practices are so foundational. And literally, to wrestle this thing all the way down, yeah, write it down. <laughs> write down, like, what is my ideal blank mindset? Performative, competitive, or expressive. What is that mindset? And then what are the ways I need to speak to myself to back myself? And then breathing is meant to be able to help you find that ideal state where you're not, the porridge isn't too hot, it's not too cold, but it's just right. That activation level inside of you is just right. And sorry, I get animated. I, I, I think the psychology of, of excellence is so important for all of us. I agree. And, and there are a couple of things I want to unpack. One is that negative thought. We all get that negative thought Maybe it's on the field and I, and I start to have that negative thought. Maybe it's in the boardroom. We all have it. When that negative thought starts to become problematic, how do we nip it in the butt immediately? I use the word productive, unproductive, as opposed to positive and negative more often. Because positive conjures up this idea of like, it's all good, you know, but productive has a little bit more weight to it. Um, unproductive and productive feels like I can do something a bit more powerful with my, with my choice of words, with my choice of thinking. So if I have an unproductive thought, call it negative thought if you want. If I'm having one of those thoughts, it goes from thought to thought pattern. So there's a thought and it's not until it's like a pattern of thought that it's problematic. So one thought, which is like, man, I don't know if I can get this done. I, this challenge looks too big for me. That just saying, just recognizing that, again, it all starts with awareness. Just recognize that that's just a thought, no problems. I'm much better now at my life than I ever was. I used to go from thought to thought pattern quickly. Now I think about it like a train of thought. It is I would get on this unproductive thought. I'd have an unproductive thought. It's like getting on a thought train. And then there's 29 stops, let's say, until you you're in the land of fear, you're in the land of anxiety. I didn't know how to get off the train of thought. 
So I've got this thought pattern, stop training 29 happens. I'm kicked off that train and I'm, I look up and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so anxious. I'm so freaked out. I now can get off on, I don't know, stop four. But at some point in my training, I would get off on stop 15. And that's pretty good. It wasn't 29. You know, I'm just making these numbers up. And now, like, I'm not getting on that train as much. So one thought, no problems. I wink at it. I say hello and goodbye, just like I do in mindfulness practice or meditation practice. And if it comes back around, I wink at it again. And then maybe I want to guide my thought to something else. So I'm not leaving this kind of open canvas. I'm guiding my thought to something that is task relevant or something that is um, confidence building. And so it's either focusing on the task at hand or backing myself in a specific way. Those are the two ways that I use my mind when I'm in a high heat moment or readying myself for a high heat moment. So I'm going to bring it back to the fear of other people's opinions, where, where we started and where the, the book is about. And this is definitely playing a role in, in, in this process as, as someone is, you know, maybe that, that unproductive thought comes their way. My guess is many times it's probably attached to well, what's someone, what, what, what's someone thinking in my inability to do X, Y, and Z or my failure in the moment, what have you. And how much of it is real versus unreal in your opinion? I know there's no science there in terms of that. The, 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 the fear of someone else's opinion on the thing that I'm having the unproductive thought about. Okay. So if I've got, let's say before we're in a performative environment and the performative environment could be a conversation. It could be a boardroom, could be a living room, it could be a bedroom. It could be lots of rooms. Okay. Before I'm in that place where I'm bringing myself forward, it, I, it is fundamentally important to recognize that performance is meant to be an expression of who we are, not a definition of who we are. So that's really important as a first principle. The second piece to answer your question is that if I'm feeling a certain way and I'm keyed up in a certain way, is that it's incredibly important to recognize that something important is about to take place. And because of that importance, that my body is kicked on and my mind is focused on something. So if the important thing is artistic expression, if the important thing is unlocking, then your attention drop, your, your, your activation still increases. So your heart rate changes and you know, all of those kind of nervousness as a, as a label that many people describe happens. And then your attention drives to the thing that's important. So if it is the unlock, your attention drives to the task. If what's actually important is somebody else's opinion, if what's actually important is being accepted or not being rejected, this great fear of rejection, then what ends up happening is you know you've got to focus on the task at hand because it's complicated, it's nuanced, it's special in some respect. And then you're, one of your eyes is on that and another eye is on gauging other people's readiness to accept you. Oh my God, we, we'll fumble. Because you know, one eye on one thing and another eye on another one is, is impossible because we don't our eyes don't work like frogs, right? So so what ends up happening is we take our eyes off of the ball, off of finding the next most eloquent word in a conversation, and we move to scanning and checking in, are we okay? So now we're operating a bit like a strobe light effect where remember when we we're in eighth grade and the strobe light came on at the dance, 
and like parts of the frame were missing and it was really exciting. Well, that's how like psychology works with people is like all of a sudden you're, you can't focus on the task. You're focusing on what's happening there in the other person to see if you're actually okay. And the balls move forward and it's easy to kind of fumble it along the way. Okay. So if what's really important is being accepted, not rejected, then we're going to tune into that. And that it, there's a cost to that, to our ability to perform at our best. And that is, we know that from a, a study of attention, that that's nearly impossible to be great at multitasking, if at all. And that is a multitasking that's often happening privately with FOPO, is that we're looking outside to see if we're okay, and we're trying to manage the task at hand. Pick one, <laughs> right? And And that's kind of what this is about. And you know, I think once we just talk about this, it, it reminds me of David Foster Wallace, the great writer. And he, he talks about uh, two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. And, and the older fish nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And then the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then they eventually, you know, one looks at the other and, and says, what the hell is water? You know, and so the, the older fish's question really like, how's the water is, is just to make the young fish or the other fish think about their reality to, to, to the things that were so ingrained with our existence that we failed to even notice them. And I think that's what FOPO is. And so just becoming aware of it will be a bit disruptive. And then what the opportunity is to say, right, I'm okay. Like, I don't need your approval for me to exist well in life. It is nice. It is nice to have, just like the big house and big car and big watch and big bank account. That's all, that's all great. But I don't need your approval for me to be okay in modern life. What I need, now go back to purpose. Now go back to being in a relationship, in a healthy relationship with yourself and others. What also hits on this larger idea that most people don't think or talk about us as much as we do, and no one really cares. And, and, I'll, and I'll start by saying, you know, I love the book. I think the book is a must read for, for anyone interested in performance. And it's a thought-provoking book, it's a deep book. And then I found myself reading and I start laughing when you talk about the Barry Manilow effect. So can we talk, I think that hit the nail on the head in communicating that idea. Can you talk about the Barry Manilow effect? There's a great bit of research where the investigators had a room full of people and they had a, uh, the, the person in the experiment and they gave the person in the experiment an ugly shirt, a shirt that, you know, had the, uh, the anti-cool Barry Manilow kind of big emblem on the shirt. And they asked people like, what do you think? And, oh God, this is embarrassing. And then they asked them to go into this room and, you know, kind of wear this ugly shirt, if you will. And then they asked afterwards, the person's experience of wearing the ugly shirt and the participants in the room, did they notice the ugly shirt? And sure enough, <laughs> you know, that's where this, this idea of the spotlight effect uh, came alive. Sure enough, the person wearing the shirt thought that everybody was looking at them. And sure enough, the people in the room barely noticed that the person had the Barry Manilow. So it's the spotlight. There's a spotlight that we think that we're under all the time when actually we're not. And so there's a bit of relief in that research to just know that that's happening often. However, it doesn't change the fact that it feels like there's a spotlight on you. 
So that's, I think it's foundational to just recognize that. And it's also foundational to invest in the psychological skills when the spotlight is actually on you. So both of those hold true when, you know, you're working on being just a little bit better of, of a person than you are today. In terms of where we are culturally today, where do you think we are on FOPO? You know, that we've got social media, we've got technology, we've got tribalism, we've got a lot going on here. Where do you think, how do you think we're faring? If I give the United States of America a grade, I think that we're in the, the D range and we're not leading the world in education. We're not leading the world in happiness and joy. We're not leading the world in many facets of what I would call a modern thriving society. And so it feels very adolescent and it feels a bit overwhelming to most of us. And so that tribalistic type of behavior, the othering of others is like, like I've never seen it in my lifetime, more so than it is now. And th that's a wanting to be part of something. So that's a wanting to identify with a group that shares values. The, the problem that's taking place is that we're, we're missing that curiosity about the other tribe's point of view or position or perspective. And we're condemning and critiquing and judging and ostracizing and belittling the others. And that's where we start to get wrong. So there are facets that are demonstrating great curiosity and you know having that ability to thrive in modern life. You know, there's thriving, struggling, and suffering. And we know that mo most people are struggling and, and suffering, not thriving. And so I don't, I don't have um, the answer by any means, but I, I do have great clarity that until we invest in our internal resources, we will feel like the tide is ripped out and we're swimming naked. And so it's foundational to invest in our own psychology. It's one of the few things that we have great control over. And unfortunately, we're not taught it at a young age. And the branding of psychology got a bad rap that it's for the study of weakness or dysfunction or disorder, when actually it's the study of yourself. It's the study of what makes you you. And I don't know how to get better at anything without being a student of it. So this cl rich clarity that I want to offer is that for you to live well in life requires an investment, uh, being a student of your own self and being a better student of that so you can be a great friend to others. And so that is what creates a rising tide. And we need each other. Nobody, this is a, this is a borrowing from elite sport. Nobody does the extraordinary, does the remarkable alone. Not a single athlete, not an individual contributor like an individual tennis player. Nobody does it alone. We are all working inside of teams. There's teams inside of teams. There's this fabric of culture of relationships that allows the extraordinary to take place. If you want an extraordinary life, if you want to have a flourishing life, it involves relationships. First, your relationship with yourself, and then very important relationships with others. And so again, it's not about how they treat you. It's about how good of a teammate you are on the shared vision of what the good life is. And that requires to be a great teammate, requires that you invest in your own psychology. On that note, how does everyone become a better teammate, a better friend, better at relationships in their day-to-day? -day? Share a tip for us? The late, great Bill Russell, one of the most winningest 
athletes in the NBA history came and visited the Seattle Seahawks when I was part of that, that franchise. And he's won more rings than just about anybody else. So he understands winning at the highest level. And he was good. He was a special one. And at some point in his career, he said, I realized that for me to continue this, it wasn't just about me being better. I had to be a great teammate for other people. So we asked him how he did it, to your point. And he talked about he would wake up in the morning. This was his best practice. He would wake up in the morning. And before he arrived at the facility, he would know in his mind how he was going to be great for each of his teammates, each of his coaches, and each of his staff. So think about that for a minute. He would use his, this power of imagination. Our imagination is an untapped resource. And when we think about something, it's, we're invoking images. And we can purposely create images in our mind. And his, the way he was using his mind before he arrived at the facility, call it, you know, before you arrive at work, he was thinking about how he was going to be great for Roger or Frederick or John or Jane or whatever. And it's just taking 30 seconds to think about how am I going to be a great teammate for my spouse, for my partner, for, for my em employees, for my direct reports, whatever. That's a great practice. That is using your imagination, getting clear and thinking about the benefit of others and how you can be in service of them. I think it's one of the best practices I've ever heard. And you know, I would start there. The second thing, quick follow, you cannot be a great teammate if you're running around trying to have your needs net only. And that's what anxiety is really about. I'm so afraid of how the future is gonna go. I'm so anxious in how I'm responding that I'm not seeing or feeling what's good for you and how to be of support for you. I'm overwhelmed. I'm looking to get my resources net. And that's why right underneath anxiety is intolerance, frustration, anger, you know, all of those kind of behaviors that fray partnerships and teammates. So go head on on best practices for anxiety and practice being a great teammate by using your imagination to see and feel how you're going to be great for other people before you arrive in that condition. So you mentioned the late, great Bill Russell. I'm curious, is there anyone you have not worked with who's deceased or maybe alive that you would love to work with? Oh, there's so many. I'll name a few that when I think of, you know, I, I, I don't want to use the, the phraseology Mount Rushmore just because of what I'm coming to understand it represents, but that image of having some, some folks on a mantle that are like really inspiring how they live. Jane Goodall is still alive, and I haven't had the chance to know her. I, I would love to sit with her. She was such a disruptor. I mean, she just, she knocked a science, built a, you know, predominantly white men that thought it was too dangerous for women to go into the, into the bush and go into the jungle. And she flipped that whole thing on its head, went into this dangerous environment and challenged fundamental beliefs and changed a very important part of science. And I just, so Jane... Yes. I'd want to be able to sit with Dr. King. I'd want to be able to sit with Gandhi. I'd want to be able to sit with Confucius and Buddha and Jesus. Uh, all, the, all the great cultural shapers of, you know, like they sit right there for me. I also want to sit with Michael Jordan. I haven't had the chance to sit with Michael Jordan. So uh, there's something about his fire that, <laughs> that squares completely differently than the, the seven or so folks I just met. So th there's would be some folks there. And how could I forget Viktor Frankl? So you sit and top the list. I love it. You think big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. It's fun to do that. And of those you've worked with, I'm curious, are there 
any specific people that just really stand out to you? There's two that I think are um, come to mind quickly, and it's because of what they were trying to achieve, and they they both were successful. Carrie Walsh Jennings is one of them. She's one of the most winningest athletes um, to ever play the game of volleyball. Uh, five Olympic Games, four medals, and she's very public with the work that we did. And it was after her second medal, she came in, gold medal, and she came in, she's like, look, I, I know how to be my very best, which is the very best in the world. And I've been able to do this for a decade. I need to go into the next Olympic Games. I need to go on this next professional tour and be deeply connected to my loved ones. So she she came in with this dual parallel goal, which is to be connected to her loved ones and be her very best, you know, striving to be the best in the world. And she did it. And so that's like, I think that's quite remarkable. The second is Felix Baumgartner. Felix Baumgartner, you might recognize from the project called Red Bull Stratos. And if you're not familiar with that, I, I'd love for you to take a look at it. Um, he was going to be the first person to jump from 128,000 feet, which is right at the stratosphere between uh, outer space and you know our gravity. And all the brightest minds in aerospace said, we don't know if you're going to travel the speed of sound. And if you travel the speed of sound, if your arms and legs are going to rip off. And he was fully committed. They had this incredible team. It was an eight-year project, four years into it. And this happens to anybody who's pushing their edges, is that he ran up against his capacity to handle that stress. And he was in the airport. He called the team. I was not part of the team at that point. He called the team and said, crying. And he said, I I'm terrified. I'm, I'm, af I'm afraid you know, that I'm not going to be able to figure this out. And I'm overwhelmed. And I... I know we've invested four years of our lives. I'm so sorry. Thank you. I know Red Bull has invested millions of dollars. I just can't do it. And so it was from that point that they they asked if you know he would consider spending some time with me, and they included me in the team at that point. The rest is history. He did some really good, deep work. It lasted about three days, and he extinguished his fear that he was having, which is a, a feeling of claustrophobia. And we squared up with it, faced those dragons, uh, found a sense of freedom in his life. And he goes on to you know, be the first human to jump from that edge and to pass the sonic boom and to have his legs and his arms stay intact across the, the, the adventure. So I think about those two people in very different ways, but um, they both fundamentally committed their life to their becoming their very best. And when they reached the edge, which we all have an edge, they didn't try to just do it the same way over and over again. They said, I need a new resource. And that resource, I, I, I think for most people, the edge is emotional. It's psychological. It's not physical. It's not, it's emotional. And so, you know, they just deployed good science. And um, that, that really inspires me. Very powerful stories. And great to hear you mention Carrie Walsh Jennings, who's a friend of ours. Uh, she went to college with my wife, Colleen. She's a lovely human being. And we remind our little girls of Carrie Walsh Jennings because they love volleyball. So in closing, you know, I hope everyone picks up the book. It's a fantastic read. I'm curious, what, what's your hope with the book? What do you want the message to be to people around the world who are going to pick this up? My hope is that we become a bit more attuned to the water we're swimming in. And the ultimate aim is that, you know, the water we're swimming in becomes a freeing mechanism to be our very best. We have 
seemingly intractable problems that this world is wrestling with. And the idea of being able to use one of the greatest untapped resources, which is our own psychology at scale, is what keeps me up at night. And there is a better way of living. And my contribution, hopefully, to that better way of living is to help people work from the inside out to invest in their own psychology because we need each other. And we're not going to figure this thing out alone. And it's not until we settle into the being okay in the present moment more often that we'll be better custodians of the relationships, the planet. We need to figure out how to have relationships with machines. If we can't have a relationship with ourselves and other humans, we're going to have a real hard time with the relationship with machines. So that's my hope. And I hope there's a freeing mechanism for people that read the book, which we talk about the on-ramps for FOPO and the off-ramps. And we give very practical solutions on how to work from the inside out to square up with this anxiousness about you know, needing to be accepted by other people. Well, Michael, thank you so much. 